We have so many talks with our kids about sex and safety and dangers and drugs and bullying. But what about fatness? Let's keep calm and mother on. Mothering is way too important to do alone and way too serious to be serious all the time. My name is Christy Thomas, and I am here shoulder to shoulder with you, mothering and enjoying life together. This is the podcast where you can focus on being mindful and taking a deep breath with me and learning new things so you can pause and savor the amazing life you already have. Now let's go. Oh, there we go. I'm very excited today to talk to Virginia Soul Smith. Um, you may know her online from Instagram and journalism, or you may not. But either way, this is going to be a really interesting conversation. Her new book comes out in April, and it's called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. And with everything that's come out recently from the American Academy of Pediatrics, this is a much needed conversation. So I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So <laughs> let's just jump in. This book is really like the conversation we need about fat. <laughs> like we have conversations about sex and drugs and safety Um and we have conversations that are maybe about healthy foods, but mm-hmm. very, very biased, obviously, as I now know from reading this book. Um, but we need to talk about fat. So let's let's jump in. Let's learn a little bit about you. Yeah, sure. So I'm a journalist. I've been a health reporter for about 20 years. And most of my career, I was working in women's magazines and doing health reporting for places like the New York Times, Scientific American, other mainstream media outlets. Um, and for a lot of that time, I was reporting on health and weight in the very standard way, which is to assume that if you are in a bigger body, you want to be in a smaller one, that everyone's health always improves with weight loss, et cetera, et cetera. And somewhere along the way, particularly around almost 10 years ago, when I became a mom myself and started to kind of reckon with these issues in a more personal way, um, I started to question that paradigm and to look at what the research really said about weight and health and to realize the relationship is much more nuanced than we've been led to believe that higher body weight does not always equal poor health outcomes. And even if it is associated with poor health outcomes, we don't have safe and effective, sustainable ways for most people to lose weight. So, you know, it's sort of a moot point. And in particular, when it comes to kids, focusing on weight is a really harmful way to go about approaching health. It is not health promoting. And we have just you know, research study after research study showing that focusing on weight, weight-based teasing and shameful comments about foods and bodies, certainly dieting in kids, all of this increases their risk for disordered eating and eating disorders and a whole host of other negative outcomes. So that's really when I started to shift the focus of my writing and research and look more at what does a weight inclusive model of health look like? Who, you know, how can we expand these definitions? And that's led me both to this book and the work I do on my own newsletter and podcast, Burnt Toast. 
And I'm so grateful you are doing this because when my oldest was a baby 16 years ago, when I was a new mom, we went through that whole failure to thrive thing early on. And then once we solved failure to thrive, she went to like the 99th percentile. And then like strangers would come up to us all the time and make all sorts of comments. And I was like, man, I can't win. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think that's how so many parents feel, right? Like, there's so much pressure put on parents, on moms especially, to be raising kids in, quote, healthy bodies. And we have such a narrow definition of what that means. Like, we basically mean the 50th percentile on the growth chart and, like, not much deviation yeah. up or down. And it creates so much shame and pressure for parents, which then, of course, can really disrupt the relationship with the kid, right? Because kids pick up on all of that stress and anxiety. They hear the comments. They see how we react, all of that. So it's really problematic, and especially because it's just not evidence-based. We know that kids can be healthy in all along the growth chart, up and down, and that you know when weight changes in a dramatic way, it's often just part of normal healthy growth trajectories, or maybe it's something to be curious about, uh, like, you know, sort of symptomatic of some larger change or stress or what have you. But focusing on the weight is not going to help deal with anxiety or depression or, you know, whatever else the child might be dealing with. Yeah. Or some other medical cause if it's a sudden weight loss or something. It's it's just a clue, a cue to look for more. So, yeah, early on, that's what I realized was that this really, this, my adorable kid, I started thinking about food in a different way because people were talking about her weight and, and I didn't want to pass that on because I'm 41 Mm -hmm. and I grew up in, you know, the snack well culture, right? Like Mm -hmm. in the teen magazines. And now it's even worse with my teen daughters because they have social media and those voices are so loud. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is really interesting. I'm the same age as you. So, you know, 90s diet culture, <laughs> as we experienced it, was not great. Like a lot of really bonkers stuff went on. A lot of <laughs> it's messages. Good to have that affirmed by someone who <laughs> like, studied it instead of just. No, like- <laughs> it was really messed up. Like, you know, when I think about the harm caused by Seventeen Magazine, which is a magazine I also worked out at the start of my career, by the way. So I've been on both the recipient of the harm and the creator of the harm. Um, You know, when I think about the narratives in those magazines about, you know, getting your best prom body and your best bikini body and, you know, love your body, but like also, you know, how to lose five pounds or whatever. Like it was really toxic. Our definition of what counted as fat back then was really like bodies that I don't think we would today consider fat. So, you know, there was like a really narrow standard of like what your body should be. But the difference now is that because we have social media, it's like this fire hose of the content. You know, those magazines showed up in our mailboxes once a month. And then, you know, you would recycle them after a few weeks or whatever, you know. Yep. And now cut them apart and like. Right. Exactly. Make your collages. (laughs) Exactly. um, Make make your vision boards. boards (laughs) In my closet and hang them up. (laughs) Right. No, totally. But that's still like a much different level of consumption than what our kids are dealing with and what we deal with now that we're you know, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And then, but at the same time, you know, I think the conversation has progressed and I think social media 
enables us, if we choose to seek it out, to find many more voices, many more perspectives. You know, you can definitely curate an Instagram feed to show you a really diverse representation of beauty and body sizes if you lean into doing that in a way that you could never curate your Glamour magazine cover. Yeah, it never would have been there. There are so many body positivity, just amazing people I stumble upon thanks to the internet. Totally. So it's, yeah, we've made progress, which is great. We've also made not so much progress. <laughs> We're it's in a messy middle phase. Tool, <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. how a lot of things are. Um, so yeah. right now, the American Academy of Pediatrics made a pretty alarming statement recently. Can you tell us about that and what yeah. parents should know before they take their kids to the doctors next? Absolutely. So yes, the American Academy of Pediatrics just released a clinical practice guideline for the treatment of childhood obesity. And this is a pretty big deal because they haven't had um, this particular type of guidance, which really is like essentially rules that pediatricians are supposed to follow. I mean, not exactly rules, but strong guidance, yeah, strong guidelines, right. you know. Um, they haven't had that written down in quite this way in the past. And what they chose to put in this document actually goes against a lot of the advice they've given in the past. You know, in 2016, they released a position paper strongly encouraging doctors not to talk about weight and specifically not to talk about weight loss with kids yeah. because the research shows the potential for harm is so high there. And what this document does is quite different. It says that starting as young as two, pediatricians should be looking at body mass index. And for kids with high body mass index, they should be referring families to what they call intensive behavior and healthy lifestyle treatment programs, which are basically diets for toddlers and for kids. And then starting at age 12, if kids are still in a high BMI, and especially if they're presenting other health concerns, um, consider prescribing weight loss drugs. And at 13, refer for an evaluation for bariatric surgery. So this is a much more aggressive approach to managing kids' weight and to pushing weight loss on kids than we have ever seen this organization do before. And it really, you know, when you start to dig into the research that they that they pulled to justify Mm -hmm. this guidance, it doesn't match up. You know, a lot of the studies are quite small. They're not showing clear efficacy or they're not really looking very closely at the potential for side effects like increased rates of disordered eating and eating disorders. So it's really, I think... I think a lot of folks just feel really stunned by this shift. Um, And I've talked to a lot of pediatricians who are angry about it, who are worried this is going to make their jobs harder because they feel pressured to follow the guidelines. Yeah. Um, You know, so it's, it's really complicated. The one sort of silver lining to the whole thing is that I think most parents you know, the takeaway for us is to realize we have more power than we realized in Mm -hmm. those situations. And a pediatrician still needs to obtain informed consent to do any of this. And so you as the parent can say no, you can say to your pediatrician, you know, I don't want to discuss weight in front of my child, Um, any conversation you need to have about BMI, let's please have this outside of the exam room away from my kid. 
And when they start, if they do start saying, you know, you should consider these programs or these medications, you can say, you know, I need to do more research. I'm not comfortable with this. This is an approach that's going to fit for our family. Now, to be clear, that's not going to feel safe for every parent to do. Lots Correct. of folks who it's are... It's hard to speak up like that. Like, it's I've had a, the weight conversation of like, yeah. hey, we don't talk about the scale. Like, I don't care what my kid mm-hmm. weighs. Um, if you have yeah. an issue, talk about it outside of this or in the hallway with me. Yep. But it's very scary. And even that, or even for my own self, right? Like when I go to the doctor and I'm like, I don't yeah. want to be weighed. Like, yeah. I know yeah. that's an option I can advocate for. Definitely. Yeah. But yeah, but if you're going in with other marginalizations, you know, folks of color, uh-huh. lower income families, um, et cetera, et cetera, you're already dealing with so much in mm-hmm. that context. This can feel really hard, but it is your right. It is your right to refuse. Um, and I think that, you know, pediatricians are not a monolith. I think that there is some pushback within the profession about these guidelines. So it is possible to find doctors who are going to be very happy for you to set that boundary mm-hmm. and respect it and, you know, kind of go from there. But there's no question, you know, this was a really unfortunate decision they made. And I think we are going to see fallout from it in the years to come in terms of how this impacts kids, 100%. So it's super, super concerning. Yeah, because your book already talks about why BMI shouldn't be like how we weaponize BMI and how we use it as a standard. So you can can you explain that a little bit in case a mom doesn't know that? Totally. So BMI is the body mass index. I think people are familiar with the formula. It like, takes your height and weight and multiplies it and divides yeah. it and does all that. Um, and then plots you in a, you know, underweight, normal weight, overweight, or obese categories. This scale was initially developed in the 19th century by a Flemish astronomer and statistician, not a doctor, not a health expert. Um, he was measuring what he called the average man, meaning like the bodies of 19th century Flemish white men. Yeah, <laughs> like, you, that like, is one very specific population. Right. A very specific group of people. <laughs> that is who, no demographic shared with me. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, that is not relevant to the vast majority of us. Um So, you know, this was not a scale ever intended to measure health. This was about like sort of tracking population size in a larger way. And then in the early 20th century, the American life insurance industry adopted it as their standard. And that's when it became synonymous with health in terms of American health care. But there's a lot of evidence to show that it does not correlate with health outcomes. You know, we have really good research showing that, in fact, folks in the overweight category live longer than folks in the normal weight category, and even folks in the low obese category live longer than the normal weight and underweight folks. So, like, it just yeah. doesn't it doesn't take into account so many there other can factors be health at every size. There can be health at every size. Um, and even, again, if someone's not healthy, they still deserve respectful, safe care. Absolutely, They still deserve evidence-based care. And most of the time, weight loss is not the evidence-based recommendation. So, yeah, BMI is a... And it, oh, and the other thing I just wanted to say about yeah. BMI is that it's a particularly terrible measure of kids' health. Because, again, he wasn't thinking about kids at all. Like, no. this is not a measurement that was supposed to be used on children's bodies. And... They've tweaked the scale several times over the years, 
But often those decisions, um, where they put the cut points, like where they say the overweight category starts and the obese category starts, seem to be much more driven by the FDA just approving a new round of weight loss drugs and pharmaceutical companies wanting a good market for weight loss drugs. And if you have this measurement that every doctor's office is using and it's telling a bunch of people, hey, now you're in the overweight or the obese category, guess what? You've got a bunch of folks who are going to be interested in the weight loss drugs. So I think, you know, it's so complicated. And I do think the vast majority of doctors are incredibly Mm well-intentioned and their goal is our health and well-being. But these standards and these systems have been driven by bias in a lot of different ways over the years, and they have been driven by industry in a lot of different ways. And so it's just really important for us as patients to keep that in mind, that these labels cannot ever give us a full picture of our health or well-being. They certainly do not tell us our worth as people, and they are just like one data point to be considered you know, in a much larger constellation of data points that matters so much more. Absolutely. But that brings up an important point. So people throw the word fat out there a lot. They use it in a lot of different contexts, positive, sometimes negative, a lot of the time negative. How do you deal with the word fat and teaching your kids how to embrace just larger bodies? So I think it's really important to reclaim the word fat and to take away those negative connotations. I identify myself as fat and specifically small fat, which is a label we use for folks who are at the low end of the plus size spectrum, just to ref, just to sort of acknowledge the fact that the fatter you are, the more anti-fat bias you experience. Yeah. And so, you know, not wanting to co-opt those folks' experiences. Um, But I use the word all the time in my house. My kids are really used to me describing myself as fat and describing someone else as fat and doing it in a loving way. This is not an insult in our house. This is just like saying someone has brown hair or they're short or they're tall. It's just a neutral description. It's a way to have a body. There are a lot of ways to have a body and we can celebrate all of them. So I think the reason it's so important to do that, and I say that understanding how hard that feels for people. Uh, uh, Yeah, because I know that like I've personally had it like weaponized against me as a kid right like there's a lot of nuances to hearing this word can feel that neutrally (laughs) right this word you know depending and i say this like i was able to reclaim it as a fat adult in large part because i was a thin kid so i don't have as many personal negative associations with it as i think someone who grew up fat would absolutely because i didn't experience that treatment so that is that is all so real and i'm not rushing anyone to reclaim it before they feel ready. But the thing that is worth thinking about and worth sitting with is if you don't reclaim it, if you let fat be this word that your kids aren't allowed to say, if when your child says, do I look fat? You say, you're not fat, you're beautiful. All you're doing is reinforcing that fat is a bad way to have a body, that a fat person cannot be also beautiful, that fat can't be beautiful. And so all you're doing is reinforcing anti-fat bias through your own hesitancy to make peace with the word. And so again, I do I say that not to make anyone feel bad. Right. You know, yeah. this is your it's own so timeline. Complicated it's and- so complicated. But I think there is real power to doing it. And I've talked to lots of folks who did grow up as fat kids who have had that word weaponized against them for decades. And they all say reclaiming it is, you know, one of the most empowering things that they've experienced in their lives. It's just been this real moment of being able to 
you know, Reagan Chastain, a fat activist I really love, she always puts it like, this is how I get my lunch money back from the bullies. Like, this is how I say, like, okay, you can't come for me anymore. Like, I am standing in my own truth here. You can't take that away from me. And I think that's, it's really powerful. And I think especially if you're raising a fat kid, and again, I'm using that with love, that is just a way to describe a kid's body, not an insult. But if you're, if you're raising a fat kid, they need to know that you see them for who they are Mm -hmm. and you accept them and love them in the body they have. Yeah. And so being afraid to use the word really counter, really contradicts that goal, I think. Yeah, because it can feel really unsafe in your own body if you feel like someone's trying to change you all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We can't have radical acceptance of bodies and be trying to change our bodies. Like these two things don't really go together. And, you know, I also want to be clear, you can be struggling with that and still be working on being a good ally and being a good advocate for these issues. Like, it's not like I'm saying we all have to, like, love (laughs) ourselves 24-7. No, definitely not. Like, that's a diet culture mentality to be asking that of people. (laughs) goodness, we can get rid of perfection. (laughs) Yes, yes. But I think instead what we also, you know, I think we can hold that as a, we can hold loving your body as a goal for our kids. Yeah. And we can also say what really matters is that you know your body is valuable no matter how you or anyone else feels about it. Even on the days when I don't feel great about my body aesthetically, mm-hmm. I know my body is valuable, that it deserves safety, that it deserves dignity, it deserves to be cared for. And I can hold to that even if I'm like, oh, I don't like how my skin or my hair or my waist mm-hmm. or whatever looks in any given day. We can make the aesthetics matter much, much less. And we can realize that like aesthetics are just one piece of having a body and they don't take away from your body's value or add to your body's value particularly. That's a, yeah, I, I think that teenagers in particular, but everyone, right? Your research says that like by kindergarten, most yeah. kids know, think that fat is a bad word. Yeah, yeah. I know. And it's really tough, but it's when you start to think about when you start to name anti-fat bias and then start to notice it places, it's not surprising. I mean, it's in Peppa Pig, right? Which is a cartoon aimed at toddlers and they make fat jokes about daddy pig's tummy all the time. So of course, kids by preschool are starting to connect these dots, especially if they see the adults around them, if they see their parents and caregivers, you know, making their own fat jokes Mm -hmm. or self-deprecating comments about their weight or saying, oh, I can't have dessert, you know, no cheese for me or whatever, because they're, you know, they're learning that the people they trust and look up to think that there's one right way to have a body. So that's where we can do a lot of good by counter-programming that a little bit. So when you see those jokes in Peppa Pig, do you pause and point them out to your kids? How do you combat it in your house? Yeah, you know, my older daughter is nine and a half, and we just started watching Gilmore Girls together, which Yay. is like one of my comfort watches. You know, I watched, I guess, in my like late teens and 20s, mm-hmm. um, and something I sort of go back to. So it's really fun to be sharing it with her. And Gilmore Girls is a great example where like there is a lot of like strong female characters. Mm-hmm. There's Melissa McCarthy is on there as a great fat character yeah. whose weight is never mocked or apologized for or anything. But then there's also these moments that are just like record scratches, like where they make comments about how much food the Gilmore girls eat and how do they stay so skinny. Yep. And I'm sure it's driving my daughter a little bit nuts, but I do <laughs> pause. Good. I get the remote and I press pause when we hit one of those. And I'm like, 
oh, I love the show so much, but why did they say that like that? You know, and we have a quick conversation about it and then we move on and go back to enjoying the show. And I think you can do both. You can use these. I think there's often a sort of knee jerk panic that sets in where parents are like, okay, well, we just have to get all the diet culture out of the house. And it's like, no, 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 no. Number one, impossible. And number two, like that's that perfectionist mindset coming in again, right? Where you're trying to control this whole Uh thing. What we're trying to do is raise kids with the tools to navigate this themselves and to, you know, ask their own critical questions. And so that's what I'm looking for. And, you know, again, of course, like what I'm doing with my own kids is a very small sample. But, you know, when my daughter was reading Harry Potter, she brought it up to me like they've got Dudley Dursley on a diet, mom. What's that about? And, you know, yeah, more recently she was playing a game on her iPad and it's like a very much a kid's game. It's like penguins on, you know, some snowy sea. I don't know. (laughs) I don't understand iPad games, but it's about penguins. Yeah. And then in the middle of the game, an ad pops up for keto weight loss pills. And she brought it right over to me and she was like, what am I seeing? And again, of course, you know, I was like, I want to throw your iPad into the sea. I don't want you to see this. This is garbage. But it was like, okay, teachable moment, teachable moment, dig deep. Yep. And then it became like every time the ad pops up, she would be like, can you believe it says expert backed? Who are the experts who would back this? You know, and we're having this dialogue about where she's building media literacy skills by critiquing it and like tearing it apart a little bit more each time. And so it ended up being a great way to talk about these issues and for her to start to make her own choices. And she actually eventually, I mean, I'm sure she'll play the game from time to time, but it kind of fell out of favor as her favorite game because I think she was like, like, I don't I don't want to be, you know, supporting this. I don't want to see these things anymore. Yeah, I don't want to do this. And that's so much better than if I had banned the game, right? Because if I had banned the game, it would be the only game she wanted to play. Absolutely. So, that's how yeah. life works. <laughs> Completely. It's for sure how parenting works. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, I guess the last thing I really want to make sure we talk about is how we talk about family dinners and foods. Mm-hmm. So do you have any tips? Because I know in my circle... We've had, um, we have the fat talk, right, of about bodies, but we also have the awareness that some of our friends are actively struggling with eating disorders already. Mm-hmm. And how do we judge, build, or not judge, we just want to make a community table where we can eat together. And that, that's got a lot of bombs on the table right yeah. now. Yeah, it's super fraught. It's super fraught. I mean, I think it starts with your family's culture at home and, you know, making sure that there are no bad foods or good foods in your house, that treat foods are not restricted. That's not to say you serve cookies for every single meal of the day, but it is to say that when you decide it's time to have treats like cookies after school or dessert with dinner, you aren't requiring kids to eat other foods in order to earn the treat. You aren't putting a lot of rules over how many cookies they can have in one sitting. You're letting them have the foods they love and enjoy them and then move on with their day and decide for themselves how much they want to eat at any one given time with the foods. Is there a way for a parent to backpedal those things if they've done it wrong before? Yeah. And I also like we don't even have to call it doing it wrong. Like I just I I so don't want (laughs) parents to feel bad. I totally had a rule before with my kids that I thought I was doing the right thing about like eating vegetables before dessert. Yes. I never had the I clean think, plate club that I grew up with. Right, right. I was so like, it's like you were like, I'm making these steps, least. but yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah, and so the vegetables before dessert thing is, so just to give some context for why I'm pushing back on that is there's a lot of really nice studies showing that when you make those rules, mm-hmm. you teach kids to want the dessert more and to like the vegetables less. So you kind of shoot yourself in the foot because yep. <laughs> instead of them being like, oh, I always love to eat broccoli before ice cream, like they're just like, oh, fine, get me through the broccoli, uh-huh. get me the ice cream. So it doesn't build the love of vegetables that you actually want to build. And I think you can say to kids, you know, maybe this wouldn't work with like toddlers and preschoolers. You could just sort of more subtly start changing yeah. the plan. But with elementary school kids and teenagers, for sure, you can say, you know what? I've been thinking about this. I don't love the way we're handling treats. I feel like I'm making too many rules. I'm not letting you guys trust your bodies. And I want to make some changes to how we're doing this. So going forward, if we're having dessert with dinner, you can have it no matter what else you eat or don't eat on the mm-hmm. table. You can even decide to have it first if you want and then come back to the main course we can put it side by side like dessert if we're having dessert dessert is available you don't earn it and just see how your kids respond yeah. to that i think kids can hear the grown-ups screw up sometimes or change it's their really minds important for kids to hear that really important <laughs> and what you'll probably see though just to kind of prepare folks is your kids will not trust it at first and at first they're going to eat only dessert and they're going to eat a lot of dessert because if you've had these roles, well, just they're kind of go- like yourself in that situation, yes. right? Like we've grown yes. up marinated in diet culture. Right. So if I make this rule, I know that I have found or undo this, right? I have found that I eat more of the sweet things when I Absolutely. allow them to be just in residence neutrally in my house. And what you need to understand is that is a feature, not a bug. That is your body. Like you are wired to do that because your body responds to restriction the way it would respond to famine. And when the restriction lifts or the famine lifts, your body's like, great, we can eat this. Let's have a lot of it. We don't know (laughs) when it's going to come back. Let's stockpile for winter. And so that is just your body responding to the change and that now this this previously scarce resource is Mm -hmm. now available. And so you have to let kids go through that. And you will only slow down the process if you are like, are you sure you want that much? And, you know, like sit on yourself, like get up and walk away from the table if you have to, like just let them do it. Yeah, And it will take some time. And for every kid, it's going to look very different. There's no right or wrong way through this. But I think most kids, the research shows, will eventually get to a less fraught place. And so there may be kids who get to a point where they're like, "Eh, I can take or leave the cookie. And that feels like a victory. But the victory is not that they're not eating the cookie. It's that they are just listening to themselves. And so a similar victory is the kid who always is the kid who wants five cookies, but they can have five cookies and move on with their day now. They're not like, I've had five cookies and I'm obsessing on when I get more cookies. And, you know, it's a fight and it's this whole fraught thing. They may just really love cookies and they're never, you know, I love brownies. We make brownies almost every week in my house. I'm never not going to eat two or three brownies. Like when I have brownies, like they, that's what I want to eat and it feels good. But now I have two or three brownies and then I move on as opposed to, when I was dieting and it would be like, can I have the second brownie? Am I going to have the second mm-hmm. brownie? The whole, you know, oh my God, I had the second brownie. Now I feel bad about it. What am I going to do? That yeah. whole narration is just The whole gone. spiral of that's yes. the whole focus. Right, right. And then that's when you end up with the, well, I had one brownie, so I might as well eat the pan of brownies, even though I don't even want the pan of brownies, you know, um, and that whole thing. So... 
Yeah, so the goal, and it's just, I think this is hard for parents because our goal is to give our kids a freedom and ease around food that a lot of us have never experienced. So your like goal is this thing that may feel like Santa Claus, you know, like it may feel like this like yeah, fantasy it's world. It's magical, right? Not but it can own. happen. Yeah, it really can happen, and, and it's really so beautiful, reassuring. Um, I'm totally going to send this book to my mom too, because Ooh, I think I love grandparents that. need to be yes. aware of this shift of yes. of conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. A lot of questions I get from readers are, okay, how do I talk to the grandparents about this? And I think it's important to remember and to find compassion for the fact that grandparents, you know, folks who are boomers and who are in their 60s and 70s now, they lived through many more decades of diet culture than we did. So they've had a lot more time to internalize all these messages, to marinate in it. And without the benefit of the discourse that's happening right now. So, you know, we have to be patient. Usually on social media in the same way to find the change of conversation. Yeah. And I think, you know, I have lots of boomer readers on the newsletter and a lot of folks are saying like, no, I really want to do this. This makes sense to me. Like, where has this been all my life? But they're also aware that, yeah, that's not, it's not everyone. And, yeah, the starting point is just different. So we have to sort of dig deep and find some grace for our moms and our dads on that one. A lot of compassion. Yeah, yeah. So I have a question for you. As you're doing all this hard work and raising your kids and being the busy mom and going on hikes, what are you doing for self-care? What does self-care look for you? Look like for you? Um, my main self-care activity right now is jigsaw puzzles. I really love doing puzzles. Um, I find it really just like quiets my brain. It gives me something to do with my hands that is not scrolling my phone. Like you really can't look at your <laughs> yeah, phone you and do a jigsaw puzzle at the, same time. at the same time. And it's like, you know, I'm also a big reader and I do read a lot, but I find when I'm feeling like more burned out or fried, mm-hmm. like it's too easy to just keep putting down the book and picking up the phone. Yeah. But puzzles kind of push me out of that. So that's kind of my main self-care activity. And I've really like leaned into it, especially over the winter. Um, and just like, you know, we've got like a little corner in our living room now that's like my puzzle corner yeah. and my kids know they're not allowed to touch my puzzles. Can I mean, they help you puzzle or is they it help sometimes? Okay. They help sometimes, but I do get really grouchy because often they want to help when I'm down to like the last like 20 pieces. When it's easy, and I'm like, finally. <laughs> like what, like my daughter said to me the other day, can I put in the last piece? And I was like, you absolutely cannot. No, you will I not steal my thunder. <laughs> I need go. this for me. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite type of puzzle? Um, I do a thousand piece puzzles and I really love the ones that are like discrete objects on a colorful background. Like I don't like the ones that are like very monochromatic and you're just like looking at one color. I need like there to be like lots of seashells or lots of flowers or something like that. Yeah. I'm also a big, the ombre puzzles. No, I've done the ombre puzzles, but they are a little more. They're a little more work than I want a lot of the time. <laughs> good to know. It's your relaxation. Yeah. So, yeah. like, you got to be yeah. medium. And I do think initially I was like, oh, I'm going to, like, scale up and get into doing harder and harder puzzles. Uh-huh. And then I realized, like, I'm actually not striving for puzzle excellence here. <laughs> it's another perfection, right? Like, I just want to do the puzzles I enjoy doing. Yeah, exactly. Early in the pandemic, we did puzzles, and then we found puzzle YouTube channels. And, yeah. Ooh. 
I don't know about those. Okay, so Karen Puzzles is who you need to follow on YouTube. Okay, okay, Um, But she does crazy puzzles, too. Like, and my kids are like, I want to try that. I was like, no, no, we don't. It won't be fun. (laughs) No, we want her to do that, and we'll watch. We can watch her and appreciate the fact that she did a puzzle that is, like, weighs 50 pounds of pieces. Oh I was gosh. like, yeah, this is like, it's like her lifetime puzzle. I was like, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I'm not looking for that. that. <laughs> no, definitely not. So how are you having fun as a family? Every episode here ends with that self-care question and a family fun idea. Well, I already mentioned watching Gilmore Girls yep. with my nine-year-old. That's been kind of our recent super family fun. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to think what else do we do that we really love. Um, as the weather is starting to get a little better, mm-hmm. we live in the Hudson Valley in New York, so we are not to good spring weather just yet, but no. it's, you know, it's ahead of us. We can see it coming. Um, then we do really love to be outside. We live in the woods and we take the dog in the woods. Um, and I'm also a really big gardener and I actually really love weekends when like we're kind of all outside in the yard and I'm probably like gardening or doing something with my plants and the kids are just playing so it's yeah. not like family like it's proximity it's like a, together yes yeah exactly like we're very good at family proximity um we like to kind of just putter around together which i realize is like a little vague but it's kind of my favorite thing no i love i love family parallel play i guess that's yes. probably the right word for it yes. right? like it's, that's the perfect term yeah. like my kids do family a lot of really play. especially with the ages of my kids like if we can all just kind of be in the same space together it feels yeah. good And I think sometimes, depending on your kids' ages or personalities, it's just a much more realistic goal. Like when I suggest a concrete activity, I can get buy-in, but there's going to be some negotiating and some pushback. And if I just kind of let us all coexist, yep. we all like each other more and end up chatting more or yeah, they just tell me it's being the best together ever. If we stayed yes. home and did some things, I oh definitely have homebodies in my family. Yeah, same. My kids love a home weekend. That's they will often. My five year old will come home on a Friday. I remember around Christmas, I had a plan to go see the Christmas lights, and she comes home from school, and I was like, "Okay, we're going to leave to go see the Christmas lights," and she goes, "Mama, I am just done going places this week." And I was like, you know what? That's really fair. We won't go. She has a common spirit animal in my house. <laughs> but she, my, my, my kid that says that is 15. And she's like, no, I'm no. peopled out. Like, Yeah. And it's good to know your introvert self that way. If that's how you are, that's a great way to be. Yep. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. And thank you for all the energy and time it took you to write this book. Where should people find you, Virginia, so they can like soak in your goodness and your humor? Because not only do you like share really well-researched things, but you're also really funny. Oh, thank you. I extra appreciate that because my four-year-old, no, she's five. My five-year-old told me this weekend that I'm not as funny as daddy. And I really have taken that quite hard. So thank you I for saying that. I think there's another bias against women being funny. Like, we yes, and my five-year-old has it for sure. And I'm trying to embrace mom jokes. Thank you. Absolutely. Mom humor is amazing. Yeah. Dad jokes are, frankly, a little predictable. Just going to say it. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so uh, you can get my work. You can obviously get the book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. Mm-hmm. It's available anywhere you get your books. There's also an audio book version. So either one, reading or listening, whatever you like to do. And then you can also subscribe to my newsletter, Burnt Toast, and the Burnt Toast podcast. The podcast is wherever you get your podcasts. The newsletter is at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. And I am on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at V underscore soulsmith. 
Excellent. And I will make sure you can find all of those things easily in the show notes in case your pen couldn't write them down fast enough. (laughs) Well, thank you for being here. You are exactly the right mom for your kids, and um, I'm glad you're here on Earth. Thank you so much, Christy. I really appreciate that. So go get a copy of the book, Fat Talk. You need to read it this summer. And I want to remind you that I'm also glad that you are here on Earth, too. You have always been exactly the right mom for your kids. And I hope you have just a good enough day. See you next time.